Hey there. Welcome to Tiny Shifts. We live in a world that is a little bit overwhelming. Maybe you've experienced that these days. And this podcast is all about how, despite the overwhelm, despite the challenges of our time, there can be the tiniest shifts that we can make in our everyday life that can radiate out and make big and meaningful changes in the world, nudging all of us to be a little bit more courageous, a little bit more joyful, and definitely more loving. And I'm so glad you're with us for this second episode of our podcast. I'm Reverend Sean. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined by Reverend Gretchen, one of my colleagues in ministry. Hey, Gretchen. Hello. So right now we're in this series called Prophets and Bystanders, which is focusing on what what to do in the rise of fascism and Christian nationalism in the United States, which is a topic that from from our community so far, seems to be resonating, but also is stirring up a lot. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Gretchen. Oh, yeah. It didn't take much to stir because uh, I think it's very much on the surface. But I think it uh, there's a noticeable uh, shift in how people are feeling to, you know, more obvious anxiety and um desire for either uh clear action or um for us to stop talking <laughs> and so that it, yeah i def- definitely think but it's you know it's complicated cuz it's not like we're not stirring up something that is you know deep seated it's right here and it's the everyday right it's right on the surface for a lot of our people which is interesting because you know, so in our first uh, episode, we started to explore kind of the really the nature of fascism, fascism as a as a tactic and an ideology, but that we are most concerned about this kind of tactic that's being deployed by people of various ideologies in ways that uh, further divides, um, scapegoats, undermines systems of democracy, weaponizes neighbors against each other. We just saw the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, call those people who he disagreed with vermin, echoing exactly what was said in Nazi Germany. And I, you know, I heard from a lot of people after the first episode, like, okay, I can see why this is helping me connect some of the dots. I can see how attacks on trans people and reproductive rights, um, fear of illegal immigration or quote unquote legal immigration um, are all connected into this kind of fascist move that is being made. But what do we do about it? And here's, we follow that up with this episode in which we're talking about church, which I'm imagining may not be the first place that people go when they think about how to fight fascism, which yeah. going to church. Yeah. And I think there's a skepticism of church um, maybe of community in general, you know, we're seeing the ways that mass movements on the right, the extreme right are gathering. We see the rise of, uh, you know, Charlottesville, we had open white nationalism. Um, And often these um, white nationalists are cloaked in the, the cross and the flag in a way that seems like church is not only uh, maybe ineffective or incapable of doing anything, but actually actively part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So why are we starting here? Why is this our next step, Christian? Well, most obviously it is the most obvious in that it is the tool that we have uh, in front of us. It is the tool we live in, live with, have access to. Um, That's at the surface but the reason we have access to it and the reason that uh we dedicate our lives to this endeavor of church is because in my view and i think if you look at history churches have a really unique role to play in uh resistance to totalitarianism and uh authoritarianism and hatred and I mean, they have a role, they've had a role in the rise of them and in the resistance of them. 
And so uh, to me, the first question is how do we become part of the latter group? Um, because otherwise we will be either an active collaborator or we will be neutral and a neutral is not so different than a collaborator ultimately well why don't we we're going to listen to a message that you shared anything you want to say to kind of tee that up i don't think so i think we can listen and then we can come back and talk some more after here we go a couple of weeks ago i sat down with rabbi Feinstone. uh she serves the congregation high Shalom, which is just down the street we were talking about the attack that happened on October 7th and how her community was feeling since. She shared many things that have stuck with me, including that in the first few days, the most consistent calls of support that her community received were from evangelical Christians. My heart sunk when I heard this, not because I don't think that I, she should receive calls of support, but because I know, as she knows, that this support is not exactly what it might seem. See, today, some of the biggest supporters of Israel are evangelical Christians who believe that the return of Jews to their homeland is a prerequisite for the second coming of Christ. In fact, as of 2017, 80% of evangelical Christians believe that the creation of Israel in, in 1948 was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That was 2017. I bet it's higher than 80%. Of course, many of these same Christians also believe that in returning, Jews must and will experience a conversion to Christianity. Which means that Christian Zionists support Israel, but they don't actually support Jews. In case you've wondered, when you've heard some of the far-right politicians espousing both 100% backing of Israel and also 100% support of establishing Christianity, their version, as American law, now you know why. This impulse, seen especially in the American right today, is just one example of the ways that church and faith can collude with hate-filled and fascist ideology. It is one recent example, but not the most explicit. Nearly a century ago, before the rise of Hitler, Germany, you might know, was mostly Christian, mostly German evangelicals, who were then working for the establishment of a, a national church which in the 1920s, they started to coalesce around issues of nationalism, ethnicity, and anti-Semitism. It was this group in 1933, when Hitler came to power, took that Nazi ideology and ran with it. The church in Germany was not just a bystander in the face of fascism. It was, in many cases, an active collaborator. In many cases but not all. Some people in those German churches were not so convinced, especially around the requirement known, became known as the Aryan paragraph. This piece of uh, law required that baptized Christians needed to prove that they were of Aryan, not Jewish, ancestry. This paragraph caused a huge controversy and conflict, not because it was anti-Semitic, sadly, but because it was saying that baptism was not enough to make you a full Christian. So this theological conflict then eventually led to the start of a resistance movement called the Confessing Church, which included theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard his name. Um, although Bonhoeffer's eventual participation in the failed plot to kill Hitler was far more radical than the Confessing Church ever managed to be. So this conflict around the Aryan paragraph also led to the Nazis deciding they'd had enough of this conflict. They took control of the local churches and they arrested the bishops. 
In response, the churches launched a huge protest in the streets of Munich, which was not a really good look for an emerging authoritarian regime. In the 1980s, when the Republican Party in America first joined forces with the evangelical church, they were taking lessons from what happened in Munich with the churches because they understood that when people are driven by and organized through their church, a different sort of power is unleashed. The resistance, the marching, the protest, it isn't just some other issue. It, it becomes core to who you are. It becomes connected to your self-worth. It becomes an existential responsibility. So that when their churches called on them to resist, German evangelicals, they didn't just march, they declared an ultimatum. Nearly 90,000 people made it clear they would leave the Nazi party if the bishops weren't freed. And guess what? It worked. The bishops were released, the state backed down, and the bishops got to control their own churches. There was so much power in these communities of faith. The sort of power that could have shifted the entire trajectory of history. Imagine if 90,000 people had instead shown up in those early days with the same insistence that they would leave the party unless the persecution of Jewish people stopped. Instead of upholding the unjust dominant culture, perhaps they could have been for a force of disruption and dismantling, transforming, and saving. Church holds so much power. Power to cause harm and power to save. And because of the power that churches, that churches hold has been used so often to cause harm, and because of the hypocrisy that this harm indicates, people of goodwill and bold vision in increasing numbers, especially over the last couple of decades, have been rapidly abandoning the practice of church. 30% of Americans now, compared to 17% just 15 years ago, say they now have no religious affiliation. 30%. In place of joining a faith community, people today often strive instead to simply be good people and follow a spiritual path outside of community. Finding tools and people and practices and volunteer opportunities in the same way we do everything else, which is on our own, individually, in whatever frequency and mode you can squeeze into your free time. This consumer-like mode has made podcasts and pseudo-communities like Glennon Doyle's Together Rising and her podcast, We Can Do Hard Things, very popular. I mean, I listen to We Can Do Hard Things and a bunch of others like it, and I take a lot from them, truly. And still, neither Glennon Doyle nor any of the pod squad, as she calls it, brought my family dinner when my daughter had surgery a couple weeks ago. But you did. I mean, maybe not you personally, but this church did. So you did. And Thich Nhat Hanh or Valerie Carr, inspiring teachers though they are and important, neither they nor their Instagram posts have been greeting and sheltering trans folks fleeing unsafe states but you have. You made those meals, offered that shelter. You show up in real life, make love tangible and embodied. And this is the power of church that we miss when we throw it all out. This central practice of showing up for each other in this collective casserole reflex that spans generations, this covenantal community that shows up for more than ourselves. This is what makes church a uniquely powerful way to resist and even transform unjust forces in the dominant culture, even when that culture includes the rising tides of fascism, as Sean described last Sunday.
Now, before you wonder, let me clarify, I don't mean to say that you can't be a good person or have a real meaningful spiritual life or experience authentic community without church. More, I mean that when I talk to other nonprofit leaders or activists or my family and friends who are not part of a church community, I can't help but think they are at a real disadvantage and how much harder and lonelier their path must be. To attempt to forge community without the standard practice of gathering together every week intentionally, co-regulating your nervous systems with one another in silence or song or just saying hello and directing our shared attention towards a greater purpose and wider love, I just don't know how I would do it. Not to mention their people probably don't sing to each other at the hospital or sit in parent circle each week while their kids are singing in the holiday choir or think intentionally about what music they'd want playing in their final days or make big batches of coffee for strangers. And for the most part, their communities do not include seven generations, seven generations of people from infancy to age 103. Intergenerational community, intentional relationships, these are a part of many organizational mission statements, but rarely are they built into the very DNA of the organization in the way they are in church. Now let me pause for a moment to talk about this word, church, which may have been causing some squinting or protective postures, like basically this whole morning or maybe your entire membership. And I'm guessing it doesn't help you to tell you that the roots of the word church are from the Latin word for circus. A little helps, a little. Before Latin, we find the roots of church in the word ecclesia, from Greek, uh, which refers simply to a gathering of citizens attending to the concerns of their community. And still, it is the Christian appropriation of the term that most readily comes up. Church signals Christian. And although our community includes Christians and we find wisdom in Christian teachings, we are not a Christian church. And the word church can feel unwelcoming to some, especially those who are not from a Christian background, Jewish, Muslim, and Buddhist, you use especially. All this is why sometimes, instead I just say congregation, or faith community, or just community. All of these words are true, and you are free to use any of them or any other word that allows you to connect to rather than flee from the word, the, the thing that this word is attempting to point at, and these practices and power that I'm trying this morning to describe. Ultimately, I keep coming back to the word church, not because just it has fewer syllables, that true, uh, but because it is what we have been called since 1898. And so by using it, it connects us with all the liberal religionists of more than 100 years ago. Church is a way of laying claim to our own history, to the sacrifices and positive purposes that made all of this possible, this gift of community that we just get to receive. Church is a way to refuse to concede this tradition, our tradition to those who would use church in harmful ways and refuse to let them take this beauty, this blessing from us and from our ancestors who fought so hard for the right to practice this sort of church. As Unitarian ethicist James Luther Adams wrote, we have a responsibility to maintain the heritage that is ours, the heritage of response to the community forming power of the universe which calls us to the affirmation of that abundant love, which is not ultimately in our own possession, but is a holy gift. James Luther Adams spent time in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, and there he got a very close up look at the church's failure to stop the rise of the Nazis. Later, he described this time he spent in Germany as an experience of conversion not in the traditional religious sense, but 
in the sense that it inspired him to change his life like entirely, change how he understood what it meant to be moral and what is required of us in a moral life, and then the role of faith and the church in this, including in resisting tyranny. He asked himself, if fascism comes to the states, what in his past behavior would show a capacity for effective resistance? It's something each of us might ask ourselves. What from our habits would safeguard freedom and democracy? And then how does our faith inspire or shape these habits? JLA, as he's often called, realized his main habits, he, he identified two habits on behalf of democracy. They were voting and staying informed. And he decided that would not cut it. And he recalled his anti-Nazi friends saying, if only a thousand of us in the late 20s had combined in heroic resistance, we could have stopped Hitler. JLA spent most of the rest of his life attempting to articulate a religious liberalism that would center habits and commitments that would ensure that both liberal churches and the people in them would be not collaborators or even bystanders, but active forces of resistance to fascist ideologies and strategies and authoritarian impulses. So in this spirit, I want to end my sermon today with an articulation of four key practices that allow church to be the place where, as author Robin Myers describes, we learn and then take direct and indirect actions to oppose those things in the dominant culture that brings death and indignity to any member of the human family or to creation itself. Okay, so I have four practices. The first practice is covenant. JLA spent most of his life, he spent like four books describing covenant. Um, I'm going to just give you a few highlights. Covenant is the practice that needs to, it, it grounds all the other practices. It is simply the act of promising, the promising of self, the promising to self, to others, to something greater. Our promises of love, of abundant life, covenant directs our commitment and our loyalty to the place where the good for self and for others and for something greater all overlap, which is why covenant makes individualism as well as parochialism, which is, that's what he would accuse the German church of mostly. They were looking inward, not out. So covenant makes individualism and parochialism impossible because covenant is where social change pastoral care and self-care become inseparable and interchangeable. To be a covenantal rather than creedal faith is to refuse to be a religion of domination and control. It is to invite explicit consent to practice, explicit consent to welcome difference and to prize individual autonomy and agency. Individual agency and autonomy, of course, that is within the context of relationship, which is covenant's way and its end. Covenant requires negotiation and explicit conversation and is therefore an affirmation of our interdependence and mutual inherent worth. And finally, covenant teaches us that humans are promise-making and also promise-breaking creatures, which means that in practicing covenant, we take seriously the human potential to cause harm, including the existence of evil, and we learn and practice forgiveness, real repair, and beginning again. Practice two. This one's easier to explain. Small groups. Small groups are where we practice covenant. By small, I just mean fewer than 12, although really anything smaller than like this is a good start. Gathering like this is essential, but it is insufficient. Margaret Mead described the power of a small group to change the world, but studies show, actually she's wrong, that it's not one small group that changes the world. 
It's small groups interacting with lots of other small groups, each from a different vantage point, each with different points of leverage, of network, of power, like with interfaith small groups interconnecting or cross-cultural small groups. Small groups connecting with other small groups become uh, engines of emergence and co-creation where new culture can be discovered and created. And it, it combines the power of the deep relationships you make in a small group with the strength of a large network. This is how you can get 90,000 people working together to make Nazis or anyone seeking authoritarian control back down. Practice three. Sustained habits that care for the soul. Despite the trends in our wider culture, I still find that getting up on Sunday mornings and setting aside this time to be in community, to be one of the most radical countercultural acts we can practice, and one of the best ways to be able to face the harm that humans can and do cause because it connects us relentlessly with the other story of, which is human goodness, generosity, and love. Beyond Sundays, care for the soul includes intentional practices of rest, connecting in nature, vespers, yoga, tai chi, meditation, singing, gardening, biking, art. Whatever habits we can sustain with regularity, that help reset our nervous systems and build in us that deeper resilience and then connect us with the beauty and the love that is at the center of our covenant. Integrating these habits into our community creates a collective embodied capacity to meet whatever challenges we face with integrity and courage. And finally, practice four, holy curiosity. This is the practice that affirms with everything in us over and over that truth is ever unfolding. There is so much we don't know, can't know about ourselves, let alone about others, about this life, about the past, about the present, let alone the future, about our families, about science, about the cosmos, the meaning of it all. Holy curiosity means we are learners rather than knowers, which means we do not know how this story is going to turn out, and it is never too late to act. Learners make mistakes and are wrong, at least some of the time. Learners seek partners who hold them accountable and help them widen their view. Learners spend their whole lives trying to ask better questions and listen more deeply, expand their imagination and their vision, and try over and over to unlearn systems of oppression. Learners commit to learning from their past and recognize the tendency of humans to repeat patterns. Learners understand that neither justice nor freedom are ever a given. Now, maybe you thought when I said I had four practices that I would be sharing a list of more direct action, clearer mandates for protesting legislative action or organizing to ensure we're resisting. But what I've learned and what I have seen happen, including here in churches, in communities, is that when these practices are sustained, the community itself identifies these requirements as they emerge and then does what is required. When we integrate the practice and wisdom of covenant in all we do, when we commit to knowing each other and also we know our wider community through the power of small groups, when we sustain habits that care for our souls, and when we practice a holy curiosity, we are incredibly and uniquely powerful. In these days where churches continue to cause so much harm, we must not cede this power, our power, our gift to the forces of division and hatred. We must claim the power of church to resist injustice, dismantle oppression, 
and uphold that still possible vision of a world where all are free. May it be so. We must claim the power of church to resist injustice, dismantle oppression, and uphold the still possible world, the still possible vision of a world where we are all free. I mean, that's the reason, one of the many reasons that I believe in the power of church. That you, you packed a lot into that, Gretchen. You know, and I could have put could have put more. I definitely had a 4,000 word sermon to start uh, mm. as I was uh, finishing writing. I spent most of my time in the writing process editing. Mm. Uh, so, but a lot of what I was wrestling with is I felt, I'm sure it's clear that a lot of the, this Sunday is such a, just an apology in the classic sense um, uh, for church. Apology as in like an, a defense, uh, explicit defense um, and advocacy for church. And, you know, I thought, I thought a lot about this audience, the podcast audience, and mm. particularly those who, you know, church is just not their mode. And so what, what does it mean to make a, such an um, extensive defense of church being a, having a unique power. And you'll, you know, you hear in there that I, I say that I'm not saying that you have to go to church to be a good person or that the only place of resistance is through church. Um, but I still think I, you know, it's a, it's a tension for me and it's tension in my life because I believe so much in the power of church and in the unique power of church. And I also believe that there are many ways to be and to live and to live a good life. And so, um, you know, I, I want to be cautious about that, but I, I definitely, I feel like I don't, because of that, uh, uh, concern, I don't always spend as much time articulating why I think church is uniquely powerful and so that was my hope in this message is to give us something very direct that that actually says no there's a reason why we would choose to make a commitment to this institution and there's something about the very nature of the institution as being like a generalist of in of the soul that is meaningful here uh -huh. that there's it's not just about inspiration. It's not just about community care. It's not just about joining with other people and shared commitment and action. It's not just about any one of the aspects of what church brings. It's the potential for those things to be fused together. Yeah. That, that amplifies it, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, what I say about then the covenant piece of that it is the the place where social change and pastoral care and self-care become interchangeable and inseparable, inseparable, right? That you can't imagine how those things don't all work together. And so you can't make a conclusion that is individualist in terms of how to live a good life. And you can't make a conclusion that is parochial inward facing. You have that there's only the combination of all those things, which is, you know, for me, part of why it that's like gets at the heart of why I think church has a unique power, um, because it requires all three of those things. It, and, and of course, it should like it. That is the whole human person. That is the the reality of our of our self in interdependence. And so it's addressing the whole human person in their to me, that to have an institution that's dedicated to the whole human person and the enterprise of being human is inevitably going to have a unique power, mm. and and that unique power, of course, can be used. That's that's why it has so much power to do harm, and also why it has so much power to do good. And that's why, you know, as you talk about the 
you know, as, as Nazism was ascended in Europe, the, the co-option of the churches was a big part of the ability of the, the Nazi party to, um, to be so accepted, so reg so readily, so fast was because yeah. they were able to take over those institutions and occupy that position of prophetic power in terms of casting vision for what is true and not just true in the sense of like reality around us, but like existential reality around us. Um, yeah. It's not just about this life, but all life and the stakes are so much bigger. Um, but then the practical organizational power of rooting out dissidents, finding people, organizing people, all of that happens when you have an institution like the church being able to do that. Yeah. And um, I also think, I actually think from reviewing everything that the biggest danger in all of that is how, how good churches are at taking care of each other in that there's it's there's so much you can do with with a people when they feel cared for and um when i look at the the history of i, I think we when we look back at what happened in germany it's easy to think to be appalled and to think that we are entirely different than those church-going people. But mostly, I think, their own kind of self-satisfaction slash community care, how well they, how much they appreciated their own churches and the ways they were well cared for, and the way that isolated them was, it, it wasn't that they necessarily were huge Nazis, but that alone created such a power um so i think it's good to remember that you know for as much as we are set up for great community care we have to be really careful to keep rem remembering that the covenant does not just include ourselves which was part of what um james luther adams was really big on the unitarian ethicist that i talk about that uh, that the covenant, in order to be a covenant, cannot just be for yourself; it has to be directed externally. Well, let's let's talk more about JLA because I'm sure there's things that you didn't get to say. Yeah, the other 1,200 words that I cut. What did? Yeah, what did you cut? Um. Well, I mean, I cut things that weren't JLA particularly around just expounding upon all of the dangers of church. But then I decided that most people probably didn't need me to recount those. That's a little more obvious um, today, uh, especially for our people in our community. But our, I, there's so much to say about James Luther Adams that I didn't get to, um, particularly, uh, you know, he, so he went to, as I say this a little bit in the sermon, but he, you know, he spent a lot of time in Germany and in relationship with uh, the leaders in the confessing church movement and other resistance, parts of the resistance movement. And from that took uh, enormous lessons about um, the role of churches. And also he brought a, um, an urgent uh, drive to figuring out what would allow liberalism and liberal churches to be a force of resistance. Um, and the main thing, and I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't, I couldn't figure out a way to talk about this in the sermon, but the main conclusion he drew was that the hope for all of us is through joining groups. And in his world, the ways that he, he Partly, one of the reasons it's hard to talk about in the sermon is that the construction of society at his time was so different than how our society is constructed. But he, so he, he spoke about the power and necessity of what he called voluntary associations and the church being one voluntary association. 
but voluntary association being that you are freely you you freely choose to associate in a in a group towards a purpose shared purpose and um so he came back from germany and he looked at his his life and he said what am i doing in my life that would uh ensure that that i would be part of the resistance that would be that would be helpful in stopping the rise of fascism and he said well i'm voting and i'm uh I'm staying informed. I'm reading the newspapers. Bobby said, I said in the sermon, staying informed because I, I felt like uh, the analogy today is would not be reading the newspaper necessarily. So, but he said that was not enough. It's too small. Um, it's not, it's too individualistic. Well, and fascists get elected to power all the time. Right, exactly. So he looked at that and he said, that's just not enough. And but then his conclusion was twofold. First, the first is the groups and um, the idea that he had to get himself involved in a more committed way with different groups and to act on behalf to because for him, groups are the best way that you can take institutionalized power that that can be a force of collective resistance um, so that you know, an individual on their own can never be enough. But that if you could have, if you could have groups, then those groups could join together, organize and resist. So that's that. that and he, the church was critical to that. And that's the, the second piece I want to talk about in a second. But just to stay on the groups idea for a second, he, he said the church was one, but that you need to take your faith and figure out what other groups you need to be a part of. And what I struggled with, Sean, in this, this translation is I'm not sure if that concept today, like, I'm not sure exactly how we translate that concept to our world today. And in that, I, I feel like the way he understands institutions and commitment and the way you quote unquote join is different today. And I'm not sure. Like, I think he had in mind, I don't, I honestly don't even totally know what he had in mind other than like, I don't know, rotary or, you know, uh, the, the, it wasn't the League of Women Voters, but the equivalent of sort of organizations that are working on behalf of democracy. Um, I think that is probably true, but the idea of sort of static institutions that one that an individual goes and joins that then is in a kind of linear fashion of resistance it just seems so outdated so that anyway i i'm curious what you think about that and if how you in your mind translate jla's idea of that our big our hope is through people joining groups I was uh, driving to work today and I was listening to NPR. The The news story was talking about how um, right now there's a group of Tesla workers in Sweden who are trying to unionize. They've unionized and Tesla has not recognized their, um, their collective agreement. Mm-hmm. And no Tesla, no Tesla plants around the world are unionized at all. No one who works for Tesla is unionized. But what struck me about it was that um, there's only 140 people that work for Tesla in Sweden, and they don't manufacture anything. They mostly like do repairs for bodywork, wind, you know, windshields, all that stuff. Um, but that the strike is by the dock workers who are now refusing to unload Tesla cars at four ports and next week all ports. So basically. Next week, a Tesla arrives on the shores of Sweden. It's going to go back on the boat it came from because mm. they're refusing to do it. Um, the janitor's union is refusing to, like, clean <laughs> any of the Tesla offices. Like, there's just, there's a way in which the, like, the solidarity that they have towards each other from all of these unions compounds together to a really powerful collective action. Mm-hmm. And it's for people that, you know, the dock workers probably don't know the 140 people that they're supporting. 
And yet they're doing it because they know it's for something greater than themselves. And it shows the power of when we connect groups to groups to groups in terms of that shared power and potential. And we're in a moment where unions are, you know, coming or seeing the power of that collective organizing again. Yeah. After years of campaigns of um, both legislative and also cultural attacks on unions. Um, and so that's just like one way I've, I've been thinking about this question of the power um, that we have in these associations, um, which is that if we're able to find common cause with others, we're able to see how that power can manifest in ways that we wouldn't have for ourselves. Yeah, I think that is, that's a good point. And I think the union movement is a good example of continuing power of voluntary associations. Um, and I like your reminder of a small number. Um, that's, I do talk about that in the sermon, but not exactly in that way, but that a small, a smallish group, relatively small group connecting with other relatively small groups, um, has infinitely more power. Um, but the associations yeah. need to be something different than just um, any a transactional group that you're a part of. Yeah. I think that's where the challenge right now is a lot of the associations and groups, you know, your pickleball league, your trivia group, your running group, your gym, you know, that, yeah, they're groups that you're a part of, but they aren't, they aren't a group that is power and the other is a move that is, uh, you know, for the common good and actually of distributing power. Forgive me all those JLA experts, the handful of them. <laughs> but I mean, that's basically, he's talking about those two kinds of moves and um, saying we have lots that do the first that are about protecting your own power. But um, we are, that the real potential for change is by finding those that are directed towards the common good and um and and this is i'm going to head us back towards church but i the main thing that I, I really felt it's like a different sermon and maybe i don't know maybe i'll get to it this sunday but the thing i felt like i didn't get to effectively in this message is about his idea of conversion or commitment in that the the kind of the main uh, critique he has of liberalism and what he feels like makes the difference of it not being an effective resistance is that it does not require of its people a costing commitment of any real kind. That it it does not ask of us and people are able to say they're freely associated with liberal churches without it costing anything in their lives and that th they that actually when it starts to cause something then they freely choose to disassociate mm -hmm. so that the that that free free association it is still ultimately very individualistic because it's based on not some sort of collective commitment you've decided to, to join into but rather whether how much it affects your life and benefits mm -hmm. Right. So is it actually any different than those kind of self-serving institutions if you just right. opt out of it when it asks you something? And, you know, yeah, there's, there's like, you know, there's, there's the really minor examples of this that I feel like as, as ministers we encounter all the time. It's the person that comes to us and says, why do we sing songs like this? I, you know, I don't come, I don't come to church to sing songs like X. Let's stop that. And yeah. <laughs> You know, I, my response in my head is usually something like, it's not about you. Mm -hmm. It's not about you. And like, what does it mean that your, your experience at church is devalued to the point that you're, you know, 
you can't make space in your heart and your life for an experience that someone else might find meaningful. Because, um, you know, I, I'm generally of the opinion that I think 20%, maybe more of the service of any service at a church should, should not speak to you. But you should know that it's speaking to someone else. Yeah, and that's part of the, I mean, part of what he is most, he's after is that that costing commitment should change you. It should change, it should, it should be something that it gets activated and changed. And the only way that really happens is by encountering people and experiences like you. that are different than you. Yeah. And we challenge so, you, annoy you, frustrate you. Right. So that's not just like something to tolerate, but, you know, to really, uh, to find as a key value that the kind of the more, the more, uh, confusing or frustrating or distasteful an experience is that it is actually an opportunity to be doing the very thing that helps us be more effective. Um, and you start to talk a little about that in talking about Margaret Mead and the necessity for these cross-cultural interface or small group experiences that there's something powerful that happens when we are in these groups that form a network of people that are not like us. Yeah. And, um, you know, theoretically that is happening from within a church practice, like that, that we're encountering one another and our differences within. Um, but the real potential in this gets to, um, Bonhoeffer and all the things I didn't get to talk about Bonhoeffer and the sermon, but, um, the potential to be encountering people who really who believe and think differently than than we do yet share a common value system and that and share common values and i do i i want to say again that's kind of it's something i didn't get to talk about but i think when we talk about cross-cultural or interfaith groups intermixing or no faith and faith mixing i think we go to the extremes like how do we talk to people who hold 180 degrees of, of difference from us how can i find empathy and compassion and understanding with fascists right and that's actually not what any of these folks um i was just reading some more of hannah red just to throw a woman in with these guys um teachers and studiers of fascism uh in all of those bonhoeffer jla hannah rent none of them say that the real key would be to talk to like convince the fascists at their Fascists are no, notably unconvincible. <laughs> right. So, but the real key is to say who, who, I actually think that, that in all, the unconvicted, uncommitted centrist or the, the satisfied um, middle ground, the, the place that actually in theory shares values but is un, unable, unwilling unmotivated to actually do anything that costs their life that's that sacrifices anything in their life then though that that's the real potential for both harm and for change and and that includes within ourselves the things that we are unable and unwilling to um within our own community to shift and change that could make a real difference that in, to confront those things together based in core values and to recognize, to speak more authentically, more honestly with ourselves and with one another about the ways we are contributing passively or explicitly to the rise of fascism. That, that I think is, that's what all of these folks are, talk, is, talk, are talking about is key, not not going out and having our group intermix with the 
Christian nationalist <laughs> groups. You know, it is really trying to dig into these deeper conversations um, and press one another about what our faith and our values actually require of us and what's getting in the way. What is the conflicting value? And, you know, how does our own self-protection and instinct to self-protection, self to comfort, to um, a lack of imagination, to um, just our own kind of, yeah, our own, again, our own uh, focus on our own lives. How do all those things get in the way of being the kind of people we proclaim we would be in such circumstances? So the name of this podcast, Gretchen, is, of course, Tiny Shifts. Yeah. Because um, the, the, the curriculum that you've laid out for everyone even is, is, is maybe overwhelming. Yeah. Especially if you're, you're skeptical of, of church and community for whatever reasons. What do you think is that tiny shift that people could make in their daily lives that would ripple out to allow ourselves to maybe unlock some of the the anti-fascist antidotes that we have been talking about the power of these sorts of connected connections and groups and relationships yeah i uh i thought a lot about that actually like i said i wrestled the most with thinking about this podcast kind of how this would translate out um beyond our own beyond a church community and i landed on focusing on the fourth of my practices which is the holy curiosity because i think it translates for regardless of if you're in a church community or not. Um, and that practice is to um, to stay open to the idea all the time, to, to commit yourself to the idea that you don't know everything and that you're, what you're seeing is not the whole story and that the story is evolving, the story of life, the story of what's going on in the world which I think inspires all kinds of um, potential possibilities, including that you, you realize over and over that, that it is never too late to act, that you have a part to play, and that, there's, that the story's not all written. And just that curiosity about yourself, about the world, that willingness to say it's not over yet, I think is... It helps us stay away from, um, you know, the the despairing place, the place where we have decided there is nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do. It's, you know, it, to me that it helps us with, as we think about the coming year and the election and just to remember truly these things are not, they're not written. And no matter what happens, it won't be the end. That, and that, I think there is a piece of when I look at, at the um these lessons from Germany that once the churches made a commitment, a course, they it's it's like they they couldn't see another way. And they and that, you know, that there was a sort of inevitability of what was happening. But that's only in, you know, the way history was written. You know, that's that's us looking back at any time. Many things could have happened. That's what Bonhoeffer was saying is we 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 don't know and we have to keep trying. And I think so. I it, that's a very broad view. That's not a tiny shift. But to, to bring it back to the person that that I think if we can each commit to that ongoing practice of remembering that that things are not all written and you don't see everything. And so how can we keep learning and growing, expanding our imagination? to see what is happening which when it's if you if you have already written how you think it's going then you're missing a lot of the story too so that's my that is my it is actually a very tiny shift to stay truly open but it's very hard and and it's not practice curiosity curiosity about fascists no it's right it's you know be open to the story that you're telling yourself which says there's nothing that can be done. I don't have any power. There's no hope. 
um, no one else around me might be allies or accomplices in this work with me. I'm, I don't have any skills to offer. It's, it's a curiosity about what is already true, which isn't about figuring out how to tame the extremes, but merely to realize what is around. Yeah. And, and to recognize, that's part of the sermon I hope people take away is to recognize your own power and don't give it away. Thanks, Gretchen, for this conversation and your message. I hope you've enjoyed the second episode of the Tiny Shifts podcast. You know, so we got some feedback from the first episode being like, I expected the uh, podcast to be short because the episode was tiny. And uh, I totally hear you. But I think that there's something about being able to dwell in these sorts of ideas in a meaningful enough way and still come out of it with uh, uh, an, an action, an invitation that is not overwhelming, but it is still tangible, um, I think allows us to thread the needle between overwhelming complexity and simplicity. But I'd love to hear what you think. So you can uh, share what you're thinking about this podcast at foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey. We always love from hearing from you. Next week, Gretchen, say, say more what you think you're going to be talking about. I'm going to talk, I'm going to kind of come back to this idea of costing commitment, actually, mm. and talk about the, the vision that we set for ourselves as to what a good life means and how we need to reframe that. Uh, to uh, kind of get at goodness in a more expansive sense. And what would that take? Hope you join us for that and for more. Thanks for listening. We always appreciate it.